The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Testimony, this opening phrase to the Bible, it sets the pace, and in many ways it sets the movement of all of Scripture and really all of our lives. It's important because it sets the stride to all of Scriptures. This phrase, it unveils to us two unique aspects about the Creator God. There's two aspects of God in the beginning God created that we learn from this phrase. The first is this. God is unique. There is a distinctiveness about Him. There is a uniqueness about God. He's monotheistic. That's a $5 word. He stands alone as the source of all power and authority on earth, which leads to the second aspect of God, which is His power and authority. Not only does God create, but He creates the awareness of creation in mankind. Said differently, not only does God create, but he gives us an awareness of that creation through his scriptures. Through Romans chapter 1, you know God from his creation. God's distinct and he's unique. He stands alone as the singular source of power and authority in the world. And in many ways, the opening sentence to the Bible, this authentication of sorts, in the beginning God created is a discreet prelude or it's a theological witness to the rest of Genesis and in many ways the rest of our lives. Ways that I intend to explain to you over the next two weeks, I believe that God's uniqueness and His distinctiveness, His power and authority in creation, it it, it impacts every point of our life at every moment of our life. In the beginning, God created as a prelude to life. Why? Why is that a prelude to our life? Why is Genesis, and in particular the opening verses of the Bible, a prelude to our life? It doesn't have as much to do with their position in the Bible. It does in some sense, but in a larger sense, the reason that is a prelude to our life or it sets the pace of our lives is because as the journey of Israel unfolds, as the journey of our life unfolds, we see this continuity in God's story, and it's unveiled to the reader that God acts in unilateral action. He acts in one-sided action. He's a God of distinctiveness. He's a God of authority and all power. We know this because we see it in creation. We see it in judgment. We see it in his protection. We see it in punishment. We see it in renewal. We see it in the calling of God upon the lives of his people. We see it in the fact that he distributes continuity between Amongst his people in life and in our life, even today, we see his continuity. We see it in redemption. We see it in our preservation as saints under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we will see it in the great eschatological restoration at the end of time when Jesus returns. God's distinctiveness, the opening testimony, in the beginning God created... It's a prelude to the rest of scriptures because God acts and he communicates and he creates. And these activities by God, God is the subject of this section. He's the one who is performing the action. It is all directed towards an object. We see this in the beginning of the book. There's the cosmos, there's the plants and the animals. But something specific and unique is occurring here. There's some object. That object is mankind. Mankind holds a unique place in the created order. God acts upon mankind and he creates mankind in his own image. 
This is very special. This is an incredible and unmatched development in all of scriptures. There's something masterful unfolding here in Genesis. There's something masterful unfolding here that impacts everyone in this room. Therefore, the question that we will wrestle with over the next two weeks is, how do we flourish in the midst of a fallen society? How do Christians flourish in the midst of a fallen society? How and why are Christians called to be attractive people in the midst of a fallen society? As a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do not think up themes and then pack text around them to get to a point. We go to the text. We go to the text and draw the meaning of the text out and apply it to your life. So what I'm simply doing is I'm front-loading the sermon. I'm giving, you a, I'm giving you a glimpse at the application. How do Christians flourish in the midst of a fallen society? That's the question we will answer. One of the things, one of the answers to this, the uh, important piece to this that I believe is the image of God as a foundational or a theological foundational truth to, cl- to the Christian flourishing in a society. The genesis of Christian flourishing in society is the Imago Dei, the image of God. So today I hope to unfold to you what I've termed a beautiful depiction. A beautiful depiction. Next week I'll unfold the second part of this sermon, which is a beautiful mandate. But for today, what God does and creates, what God does in mankind, He creates mankind in unique and beautiful ways. A beautiful depiction. Humans maintain a place in created order that is above all other creation. How humans factor into that creation and what our purpose here on earth are important. Important, important distinctions for us. This is a remarkably beautiful truth in Scripture. The Imago Dei, the image of God. I hope this series will be a source of encouragement for you as we wrestle with what it means to walk through life as the image bearers of God. So if you have a Bible with you, we'll be in the first chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. The opening testimony of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. God creates the cosmos. He creates the plants and animals. He's created all these things. And then on the sixth day, something unique happens. Something very special occurs. Hear the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He's going to give you this pattern, the author of Genesis, Moses, is going to give you this pattern. That's the declaration. That's the decision by God to create. Let's look at the execution. He just rolls through the same language in verse 26. Here's the execution. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So God created man in our image, in his image, and in his likeness. So what does that mean? What are the implications of the phrase image of God? To be created in in God's image and his likeness. There's really been immeasurable ink spilled over history in this theological subject in the space of the image of God, but I think 
What I'm going to unfold you, to you today is what I believe makes the most sense of the biblical and theological totality of Scripture. And I also think it's going to be very helpful to us. So what is the image of God? I think there's two pieces to this. I think there's two pieces to the image of God. And both pieces of this, they center on our relationships. They center on relationships. That's an important nuance I want you to understand. They're both relational pieces of what God's done. They center on relationship. I think it's an astounding truth. It's a beautiful depiction that we share. The first is this substance or structure. What does the image of God mean? In part, it means a substance or a structure. There's a gifting or a capability that mankind has because he is created in the image of the Creator. There's a structure, a substance, a gifting, a capacities. The second piece to it is function. There's a functional piece to the image of God that we can draw out of this text. Structure, substance. Start getting those twofold pieces in your mind. Structure, substance, and function. Today, I'm going to deal with the structure and the substance. We're going to deal with the gifting and the capabilities as you walk in the image of God. Next week, I'm going to try in part to unfold to you a comprehensive view of what the function of the image of God is. So the image of God, it must be stated in terms of structure. It must be stated in terms of substance. This is what I mean by that. In our relationship with God, we have unique qualities because we're created in His image. For example... Moral sensitivity, you have senses. We talked about this earlier, Romans 1. You're, you, can, you have a conscience, you can sense things. There's a moral, you can feel this tension in your life. Another idea of this is that we have the ability to reason or make decisions because we're created in the image of God. That's a, that's a creator endowed that to us. If you were here on Wednesday, I might have shared with you, or maybe it was last week, I was telling Pastor Greg this and a few others, my daughter, who's two and a half, if she will ask for trail mix, you know what I'm talking about with the M&Ms and the peanuts and the raisins, and she asks for trail mix, but what she really wants is the M&Ms out of it. So she'll ask for it, she gets the, she plucks the M&Ms out of it. I didn't have to teach her that. She gets it honest, though, because I'm that kid. I was the kid that liked Lucky Charms, but I, didn't want, I was in it for the marshmallows. So, <laughs> And if you're self-righteous in here and you're thinking, I don't need the marshmallows and Lucky Charms, I'm, not, I'm in it for the marshmallows. So hold on to that. But anyway, so you, I didn't have to teach her that. That's a, that's a a gift from God that's endowed from God. So there's ability to reason and make decisions. We have the ability to worship. We've done that this morning through this beautiful music that was labored over all week. We have this ability to worship God. Our desires long for Him. We have the ability of speech. We can communicate. All of these are God endowed. You just didn't. You were born with this stuff. God gave you this stuff. He develops it, but He gives it to you. But maybe the pinnacle of all capabilities of the structure in substance that God gives you in this is the divine image. The primary seat of the divine image is in the mind and the heart. It's in the mind and the heart. Your soul. There's a will. You have a soul. The great church father, Augustine, we don't believe everything that Augustine wrote, but Augustine hammered out much of what we believe about the Trinity. He gave us much of the language about the Trinity. He was a real gift of the church. Augustine says this. He says that God created man a soul by virtue of which he might surpass in reason and intelligence all the creatures of the earth and the air and the sea because they don't have souls. They don't have souls. You're unique because you have a soul. You have a heart and a mind and a will. You have a soul. So the Bible provides this clear indication that human beings are not only unique, but they're of exceeding value. God's distinct love for mankind is unlike any other love or any other desire or any other creation He gives us. 
There's a structure, there's a substance to that. Ten times, count this, ten times prior to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God creates plants, He creates the the plants and animals, He uses this language. He says that they were created according to their kind. And then on the sixth day, when He created humans, the language shifts. And he said he was cre- man was created according to the image of God in his likeness. That's an important thing for us. So can you begin to sense the beauty here? Can you begin to perceive the distinctiveness that's arising from this text from God? Man here is depicted in unique relationship with God. So God, humans share in God's distinctiveness. It is quite a beautiful depiction. It's a beautiful depiction. The second piece to this is function. What? We have structure, we have substance, we have gifting, we have capabilities. The second piece to this is function, which we will deal with comprehensively next week, I hope. The function is understood, whereas humans carry out various relationships. There's that word I'm giving you again. Various relationships with other people, with God, with creation. We have responsibilities there. So if you read the text again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 you hear this. You hear this language. God, God says, let us make man in his image and likeness. Let him have, and then here it is, let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and all over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this is what we know is the mandate. This is a cultural or dominion mandate. You've probably heard this language before. This mandate, which we see two times in this passage, it's in very close proximity to the image and likeness language that's used in this text. That is intentional on God's part. He places the dominion right next to the language of his likeness or image because he's calling us into something. He's calling us into something. This is a relational, it's an action-based piece of, of the image of God. And so when we talk about structure, we understand that. We explained earlier when we talk about function, what is the function? So this text, it speaks of a relational aspect. It's understood in terms of what we are and what we are to be doing. It's what the text speaks of. It's, uh, we are God's statues. We're his vice regents. That's a fancy word. We are his image bearers. We are copies of him in the world. We're literally, we're literally days into the creation narrative and God's grace is cloaking mankind. His grace is cloaking mankind. So I'm going to deal with the functional piece next week, but for this week we're going to talk about the substance and structure. So God not only endows you with gifts and substance, thinking, reasoning, sensitivity to his mercy, but he calls you to live in the world for something beyond yourself. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful depiction. It's a beautiful depiction. And so every person in this room, any ethnicity, any gender, any race, any cultural situation, any socioeconomic status, any physical endowment or lack thereof, any age inside the womb, outside the womb, all of them, everyone possesses this image. Everyone possesses this image. This is why the taking of the unborn is a grievous affair. Everyone that is created is created in the image of God. 
And so there's more occurring here, as you know, as we get to chapter 3 in Genesis, the chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, sin enters the world. This is a common narrative. You know this if you've read the Bible much. You know that sin and the fall of mankind enter the world in chapter 3 of Genesis. But there's more occurring here. There's more occurring here. Less than two chapters in, sin and rebellion enters the world. You know this. You can sense this daily. But the question is, what is the nature of this sin? Is there something more particular going on here? There's a lot going on here in Genesis chapter 3, but is there something more particular going on here? And does it matter? Does it matter? Is there, is there something unique about the fall? And the answer to that question is yes. In this sense, it's more than just Adam and Eve breaking God's rules. This is absolutely critical. There's something more definitive that's more important for us to see. There's something more occurring here. Listen, catch this. Lean up on your seat and hear this. There's something more occurring in Genesis chapter 3 that is applicable to us today, and it's this. What is occurring is a breaking in communion with God. There's a breaking in communion with God that happens as a result of the fall. There's more than that, but there's not less than that. So this breaking in relationship, there's a decision to maintain life apart from God. There's a decision to seize the divine authority and autonomy of the Creator God. There's a decision to live life apart from God. That's what's happening in the fall. So remember what I told you at the beginning. God creates unique, and then He creates with authority, and He he endows that to human beings, and then we break that communication. And this is what I'm going to run with here today. This is what's happening in this verse. There's more than this, but for our purposes today, this is what's happening here. There's a loss of of harmony with God. There's a break in harmony with God. So there's a loss of harmony. This life apart from God mentality, this loss of harmony, it doesn't eliminate the Imago Dei. It doesn't eliminate the image of God altogether. But it, 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 it absolutely distorts it. We know this from experience. We know that the image of God is distorted. We, we see this everywhere around from us. We know this from experience. We know that it's distorted, but it still remains in all human beings. We know this from experience. But be careful in basing your theology off of the experience. We base it off of the text. How do I know this? Stick with me. I'm going somewhere with this. How do we know that the image of God resides in every human being that's born on earth, whether they're inside Christ or outside Christ? The Apostle Paul and James both give us witness to that. Just listen to this. Some of you are readers. I want you to hear this because you're going to hear the similar language that comes through in the book of James. The book of James is practical Christianity. You know this. You you probably, I think Greg's preached through James for you. Chapter 3 of verse James. James is talking about taming the tongue. And then hear this language. Hear this. Chapter 3, verse 9. He's talking about the tongue. James is written to Christians, but the language in this passage, he's talking about all of mankind. He says, with it we bless our Lord. He's talking to Christians here. The tongue we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. There's the language. He's got Genesis on his mind when he's writing this. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul echoes this as well. Hear this. Here's, Paul's got Genesis in his mind when he's writing this. Chapter 3 of Colossians, Jesus' supreme The third chapter of Colossians, Paul is dealing with putting on the new self in Christ. 
You're a new creature because you're in Christ. If you've repented and accepted Jesus as your Savior, you're a new Christian. Hear this language here. In verse 10, he's talking about put on the new self. Chapter 3, verse 10. And he says, And having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You hear the language? You hear the language? So we know that it still remains. There's distortion. And this is critically important. If you drew a line above my head right here, and we put all the, Christ, all the people on earth, Christians and non-Christians, on that line. And then we threw a bracket, drew a bracket around the end over here, and we put Christians in this here, in this section. This is Christ. This is Christians. You're in Christ. You're uniting with Christ. And then everybody else that's outside of Christ, that's how we view the world. The gospel creates that divide. Everybody on that line retains some level of the image of God. It's just dysfunctional. It's just dysfunctional. And it remains. Even if you're a Christian, that dysfunction remains. You know this. You can sense this. Every day you're awake, you sense this with coworkers. <laughs> you sense this with children. This loss of harmony. Anybody out there know what I'm talking about? Some days you wake up with kids, you're thinking, I have absolutely no idea if anything's sinking. <laughs> we couldn't be further apart. This is the dysfunction. This is sin in the world. You feel it every day. Your coworkers, your wife, your husband, it just gets wobbly. There's an imbalance. There's a loss of harmony. There's a loss of harmony. This is Genesis chapter 3. So how do we flourish in the midst of a, of a fallen society? How are we as Christians to be attractive in the midst of a broken world? Here's the statement. We confront the challenges to our harmony with God, to our relationship with others, and to our relationship with the Creator God. We confront the challenges. We confront the challenges created by the dysfunction resulting from Genesis 3. That's how we flourish in a fallen society. So there's two challenges to this. There's two challenges that I'm going to give you today. I can't touch all of them, but these are two fundamental challenges that comes in the midst of living in dysfunction, but you, we're, but you still hold on to the image of God. The first is this. There's a mystery of the soul. There's this longing in mankind that the loss of harmony creates. You can sense this. God creates this void. Sin creates this void in the soul of mankind, but it doesn't break the longing of the soul. There's this craving. There's this desire in you for more. You feel this every day. The great evangelical thinker Carl F.H. Henry, who's had a massive influence on the, on the way that I see the world and the way that I think, he says this about mankind. He's talking about the longing here in mankind. Man is a God-related creature. You can hear this language, a God-related creature. And he says that by definition, man is religious. He's religious. What does that mean? What does it mean for man to be religious? This other old dead guy that you don't care about, his name's Herman Bobbing, he explains this to us in a theology. He, said, he agrees, he says that man by, by, by nature is religious. There's this longing in him. And he says the reason that we know this, I'm paraphrasing here, it's in a much larger discussion. The reason that we know that man is religious, because in general, these are general statements, so don't pick me apart here. In general, man desires to avert evil, and he longs for the greatest good. Whatever that means. You sense this. This is why this longing in human beings, there may be, uh, there's charities and people seek the highest good, whatever that means. It could be anything. There's, 
Uh, we want to avoid evil. There's an aversion of catastrophe mentality. There's AKA happiness. We long for this happiness. World peace. You may be into rescuing pets that, that have had a bad life. I mean, there's nothing in, um, there's, there's, things are typically morally neutral, but it's built because of this longing, this mystery of the soul that's created from the dysfunction of sin. That's what it comes from. Years ago, I read a biography on a family, a family, the manufacturing family. They owned the company Sweet and Low. You know the sugar Sweet and Low? It was manufactured in the Northeast. This is fascinating to me. This is an aside. I, I'm going to give you this for free. I'm not going to charge you anything for this. But you know that Sweet and Low began, the pharmaceutical executives approached this company to develop Sweet and Low as a medicine, as a pharmaceutical. That ought to tell you everything you need to know about intaking it. Sweet and low, so it was manufactured. But this author, I don't know if he had a personal vendetta against this family or what, but he wrote a really illuminating book about them. And there was a lot of ethical and moral things that went on in the midst of this manufacturing. It was a father that started the business. It was a family-run business. And there was really all kinds of dysfunction in it. And the, the gentleman that started the company, when he got to the end of his life, he was older and he was reflecting on the just some of the really unethical things they had done to get to where they were. This is what the author writes about him. This, this is stunning to me. The author writes, he said that this, this older gentleman, he got into um, philanthropical endeavors, he got into charitable work, and he said it was the sort of philanthropic work that tries to bleach away the stain of scandal. Why? Why is he there? There's a longing in his soul to make it right. There's this longing in him for the greater good to be at peace with God. In other words, there's this longing or this desire. It pulls our attentions. None of us, none of us are exempt from this. None of us, our desires, they pull us away from harmony with God. Even if you're in the faith, they pull our attention, our devotion, and all sorts of directions. All of our senses, our desires, our tastes, they're not satisfied apart from harmony with God. Apart from harmony with Him, apart from relationship with Him, your soul will never be settled apart from communion with God, apart from reconciliation with Him, apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He made you for Himself. He made you for Himself. He made you after Himself. It's a beautiful depiction. So how do we flourish in a fallen society? We face our challenges. We face the loss of harmony challenge with God. We face this longing or this desire that's built into our soul. It's there with us even still now. You can feel being drawn away from God. You can feel this loss of harmony with Him. There's a longing to be satisfied with God. We get that through Christ, but it still dwells in some, some ways. What's the second challenge for us in the image of God? In order to flourish in this society, the second challenge is that we must face our harmony with God through self-image. This is what I mean by this. The world, I cannot overstate this. If you're five years old or 5,000 years old, I can't overstate this. The world is fighting with everything it has to capture your identity. It's fighting with everything it has to brand you, to define your self-image, to define who you are, everything. And somewhere along the line, we're all pulled out of harmony with God because of this. You're pulled into this life without God position. I can't overstate how the cultural dialogue has the potential to drown you here. 
the chaos surrounding our identity, the cultural climate we're in right now is unprecedented. It longs for you. It longs to brand you. Who am I and where do I fit in all of this and what's going on? And there isn't one person in this room that's not exempt from it, including the man standing in front of you. The world longs to own your identity. It longs to own your identity. I, there's a, you can apply this to your life better than I can. I'm going to give you a few things here. Children, if you, you've got to fight to hold your identity. You cannot place your identity in your children. We want you to raise good children. We want to raise, you, raise kids that are biblical. You saw this this week. Uh, celebrities getting their kids into college. Why are they doing that? There's a, their identity, their self-image is caught up in the success of their children. And if you, if you have kids and you think you're exempt from this... Get on with the self-righteousness because no one's exempt from that with kids. It's the same thing with their failures. The enemy wants you to wrap your identity in your children's failures. There's identity issues in that. There's, I mean, jobs, broken pasts, bad decisions. Some of you made bad decisions and you stand where I do in the grace of Jesus Christ is the only reason that you are where you are, but you have these bad decisions in your, in your life, these broken paths. Maybe your father abandoned you. Maybe you dealt with all of this brokenness, and the enemy longs to pull you back into that as your identity. He longs to brand you as a broken person. Even though you're in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're in His grace. Substance abuse transitional periods in your life. There may be physical attributes. Maybe you're getting older and it's a real struggle and you face these difficulties every day and your body is worn out and the enemy's pulling you back into that. He wants to define you as, as, as not being able to be who you want to be. But hear me, my friends, you're in the image of God. It's a beautiful depiction. High school, middle school years, listen to me. I've, I've lived this, I lived this a million times over. High school kids, middle school kids, young adults, listen to this. You're trying to figure it all out. You're around all these people who are telling you all of these things and they're pulling you into all of these things and they're smart and they're confident and they're bold and they seem like they have it all together and you feel this tension, you feel this pressure and you're thinking, I'm not like that guy or girl. I'm in Christ. I'm not like them. It's a game of evaluations. We all play this game. It's a game of evaluations. It's a game of comparison. And the enemy is using it to bury you. He wants your identity. He wants your identity. Identity struggles, they creep, and the enemy utilizes them to pull you back into negative self-image, to pull you back into this loss of harmony with God. He wants you to avoid reflection on the beautiful depiction. He wants you to lose sight of the Creator God who's unique and glorious and worthy and who's designed you with intentionality, who's poured His grace out on you. He wants you to avoid trusting Him at His Word. My sweet friends, oh, to trust Him at His Word. Oh, to trust Him at His Word. He wants you to lose sight of seeing yourself as a child of grace. He wants you to lose sight of it. But you're in Christ and you're wonderfully made and you have identity because of His grace. So don't take the bait. Don't take the murmurings or the propaganda of the one who prowls like a lion. Isaac Watts, the great British hymn writer and mammoth intellect of his own right, in the 18th century, he says that the Christian is a gem. He's set forth by God as the ornament into the world to shine and to glimmer and to give light to the world. But he owns that he borrows it from heaven. He owns that he borrows it from heaven. You borrow the light of God. You borrow it from his image. So don't 
lose the harmony as sons and daughters of the king. Don't lose sight of the beautiful depiction. You're a beautiful image. You're a beautiful depiction. How do we flourish in the midst of a fallen society? How do we live lives that are attractive in the midst of brokenness? We fulfill what God has called us to, and we rest in our identity as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. How do we flourish in the midst of a broken society? Show the world your satisfaction. Show the world your satisfaction in God. Show the world your grace in the midst of challenge. Show the world your identity in grace. In Charleston, my friends, Charleston, South Carolina, in 2019, this city and this community are starved for this. They're starved for this. You're a beautiful depiction. You're a beautiful image. May the distinctiveness of God the Creator, Jesus Christ, inspire us toward a deeper embrace of His image as we attempt to flourish in the midst of a fallen society and live lives that are attractive for His glory. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Eternal Father, I'm thankful to You for this day. I'm thankful for the people of God. I pray pray that You give us hearts that desire what You desire. I pray that You give us security in our identity as images of God and help us to live in grace as we treat others with dignity and respect. We love everyone. Thank you that you redeem us from brokenness in this world, but we know that we still struggle in a fallen state. We still struggle in a space where we, where we long for things that we shouldn't and we have desires that we shouldn't, so help guide us in that. Thankful for our son Jesus, for it's in his name. Amen. If you're